Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray that this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. Thank you, Mark, and those up front with him, and those behind the scenes with him as well. So good to join our voices together, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our heart to the Lord that we can hear and encourage one another with as the sounds of others' voices uh, hit our ears, and hopefully these truths and songs will echo in the coming week as we scatter at the end of our services today. When Thomas Edison was researching the best material for a broadly viable incandescent light bulb in the late 19th century, he tried scores of ways to make it work. He wrote that every quarter of the globe was ransacked by my agents and all sorts of the strangest materials were used until finally the shred of bamboo now utilized was settled upon. Before discovering the right material for the carbon filament, Edison failed thousands of ways to find the best method of creating a bulb that could be used by lots of people in lots of places. The quote often attributed to him when asked why, what it was like to fail 10,000 times is that he didn't fail, he simply found 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. To encourage one of his inventors one day, he said, we have learned for a certainty that the thing couldn't, couldn't be done that way and that we would have to try some other way. Due to his perseverance and patents, Edison discovered a way to send electrical current through a filament that gave off light for millions of people around the world. And if you remember those so-called Edison bulbs, which still exist amid our LED upgrades, if there's even a tiny break in one of those little coils in that thin filament inside of the bulb, there's no light. The bulb is broken. It is useless. In this, I see an illustration of biblical church leadership. The bulb is the elder, the, the filament. The power supply is the person of the Holy Spirit. He is not a mere force. And the filament with all of its coils are the required biblical qualifications of an elder. And when all those qualifications are present, when all of those coils are intact, the Spirit is pleased to work in and through local church elders who by their lives and leadership shine light that blesses the local church, which in turn blesses the nations. But if one of those coils is missing, if there's a break in the filament, we cannot and we must not expect the Spirit to be pleased to work through the leadership of an elder who is unqualified. In that case also, there's no light. And that bulb, that man, should not be considered a viable candidate to oversee, to lead, to shepherd the church. Now, unlike Edison, we don't have to engage in experimentation to figure out what the leadership filament should be made of. We don't have to scour the earth to find what those coils should be, for this has been revealed to us in Scripture. 
Sadly, by many reports, it sure does seem that the church of Jesus Christ has taken experimental liberty when it comes to selecting who her leaders should be. Also, unlike Edison, then, failure here is devastating. We don't have the luxury, we don't have the liberty of getting this wrong. The health of the local church is at stake in this. The guarding of the purity of gospel doctrine is at stake in this. The leading and feeding of Christ's flock has been entrusted by him to local church elders. And if churches put the wrong men in place, this will be to her harm. And as she is harmed, so is the testimony of the gospel before the nations. Now, if you came this morning knowing that we were going to focus on this, if you're thinking already, this is a sermon to do with elders, and this has little to do with me because I'm not an elder, and I'm not aspiring to the office of an elder, if you're thinking that way, please reconsider. This is a message for the whole church. Every Christian needs to know God's requirements for elders. Of course, elders to do. Of course, men aspiring to be elders to. But the church who installs, who calls elders, the church must also. The church must understand that churches that bless the nations must be led by elders who are biblically qualified to exercise spiritual authority. That's what we're going to learn this morning from Titus chapter 1, the salt and light that we are called to be will be undermined if not led by men who meet God's standards. Churches that bless the nations must be led by elders who are biblically qualified to exercise spiritual authority. And to see that, I invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 1 as we continue in this series, in this season of our church's life. Titus chapter 1, it's page 998, 999 in the Blue Bibles, if you want help finding it there. And before we read that text, let me pray and ask for God's help to open it up to us. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would bless your church, that you would bless local churches like ours this morning. As we open your word, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would convict us of sin, that you would convince us of righteousness by the power of your spirit, that you would encourage and exhort and rebuke and instruct. And we pray this not only for ourselves, Lord. We pray this for the local churches in Nigeria. We pray this for the local churches in our region, for KW Redeemer Presbyterian Church. We pray this for uh, brothers and sisters meeting in Reformed, Christian Reformed churches this morning. We pray this for Temple up the road and forward on the other side of our city. We pray, Lord, that you would bless Central Presbyterian. We pray that you would be pleased to bless the ministry of uh, Grand River Community Church in Elora and Bethel Baptist in Fergus and Trinity Bible Chapel and Grace Bible Church. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to bless local churches, that they in turn would bless the nations by proclaiming the gospel by which people can be turned from wickedness to righteousness, from being enemies of yours to being your children. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the important role you have called elders to play in this process. 
So do that work among us this morning, we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Titus 1 then, beginning in verse 5. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers or faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Brothers and sisters, this again is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, clearly, church leadership is a Pauline priority, given the fact that the apostle leaves Titus on Crete for two purposes, as we see there in verse 5. The churches in Crete needed to be ordered and eldered. Putting what remains into order is the purpose of the entire letter, and we're going to flesh that out over several weeks. But one of the specific ways Paul instructs Titus to do this, the first way Paul instructs Titus to do this is seen in the second half of verse 5, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And there were at least 20 cities in Titus and Crete at this time spread all across the island, so each church needed its own elders, and Paul gives Titus these strong marching orders. I quote, because until the pastoral pool could be enlarged, enhanced, or both, Paul's command to put in order what was awry or lacking had only dim prospects of effective implementation. This had to be done first. And one writer notes the basic biblical pattern in this general instruction. One is that leadership was to come from within the church, so each local church had her own elders. Two, that leadership was to be plural in composition. So the New Testament pattern is that there wasn't just one elder or one pastor, but there were multiple elders, such as we have here in our local church. And three, moving into verse six, leadership was to meet certain standards of behavior. If anyone is above reproach, Paul goes on to say, and that is the umbrella term that is over all of the other lists of things that we will see in this text. It appears again in verse 7, if anyone is above reproach, if anyone is blameless. This is the material that the leadership filament is to be made of, and everything else describes the various coils that ought to be present. Now, above reproach doesn't mean an elder is to be perfect, otherwise no one would qualify. Above reproach means that nothing sticks. Not because elders are spin doctors with Teflon coats that they use to get themselves out of all sorts of sinful situations, but they are above reproach because there's no charges that you could throw at an elder and bring against them that would bring disrepute upon them or the church or Christ. Nothing sticks. Blamelessness has, someone writes, to do with living in the present in a way that is consistent 
with what the grace of the gospel confers on those who believe and receive it. So elders are to be men who give evidence of the transforming power of the grace of Christ through a consistent, observable way of life if they are to be elders in the local church. Now, Paul fleshes this blamelessness out in a whole host of ways, and I'm going to group them into four different categories. We're going to spend more time on the first two than the second two, because the second two connect with next week's text, and so we'll lean back a little bit. So they're not the same length. I'm just assuring you of that at the beginning. Firstly, though, if churches that bless the nations must be led by elders who are biblically qualified to exercise spiritual authority, the elders we are looking for are qualified, firstly, by their leadership. The church needs men who can lead So churches that bless the nations must be led by elders qualified by their leadership. And the testing ground for this in Paul's letter both to Timothy and Titus is the family. If we want to understand what it would be like to have a certain man as an elder in the household of God, then we would look first to the condition of his own household. This is God's house. That's what it says in verse 7. We are his children. And so if we want to know what it's like for a guy to be a leader in this house, you have to look to his own house. If anyone is above reproach, Paul says, the husband of one wife or a man of one woman. So if a man is not exercising the spiritual authority in his household to create an environment in which his wife could flourish, he has no business aspiring to or being called upon to exercise spiritual authority in God's household. So does a man lead his wife to worship? Does the Word of God permeate his household? Does he provide for his household? Does he protect his household? Does he serve the best interests of his household? Those are the questions that ought to be asked. If a man does not love the bride that God has given him faithfully, loyally, and sacrificially, as Christ does his bride, then he will not love the church as she needs and ought to be loved. One dynamic, I'm sure you know, of human relationships is that we sin most often and sometimes worst against those that are closest to us. Behind closed doors, when no one's around. And here, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, commands investigation into the closest human relationship that exists so that we can evaluate a man's fitness for exercising spiritual authority in a local church. So in this, an elder, a prospective elder, must be above reproach. In this, an elder must set an example of being a faithful husband to his wife. As for some questions that this verse generates, people ask, can a divorced man ever be an elder? Can a remarried man ever be an elder? That requires case-by-case evaluation, and in many cases, the answer is going to be no, but I do believe in some cases the answer could be yes. There are biblical grounds for divorce, and I believe remarriage, sexual immorality, abandonment, which can take various forms, and of course, if someone's spouse dies and they remarry after the death of their spouse, that's legitimate, they can do so. 
But in cases involving divorce, much prayer and wisdom and patience must be exercised in answering this question in specific situations, lest even the appearance of blamelessness be diluted in the church and community depending on the marital circumstances. So, it's not an automatic no, but it's not an automatic yes. And with the Spirit's help, we must search these things out and ensure that at the present time, these circumstances reveal that this man indeed is committed to this woman. He's a one-woman man, so long as those situations are on biblical grounds. Beyond the marriage relationship, Paul also digs into the second closest human relationship we can know, which is the parent-child relationship. If anyone is above reproach, he writes, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, then that man can serve as an elder. And this verse has generated much discussion and much life group discussion was around this verse this week because it seems to be saying, and some understand it to be this way, that an elder's children must be Christians in order for him to exercise spiritual authority in this office in the church. You will note, however, a footnote for a different legitimate translation of this verse. And I read it as I read the text. His children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In other words, the children are faithful in obedience to the godly leading, the godly instruction of their father as seen in their behavior. It's not saying that they must be Christians themselves. While there are reasonable arguments made for concluding that elders' children must be Christians, done so in good and sincere faith by fellow believers, I am unconvinced by them. And I want to give you some reasons why. One is the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, 4. It does not indicate this. There Paul writes that a man, an elder, must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So for Paul to admit the requirement of salvation in his letter to Timothy and then include it in his letter to Titus, that doesn't seem to make sense. Having kids that are faithful in their behavior, in submission to a father's spiritual and parental authority in the, in the home, that seems to be what Paul is instructing here. A second reason why I don't believe an elder's children must be Christians, as I quote, saving faith cannot be produced by any amount of godly parenting. Christian parents know this, don't we? Obedience and submission, however, generally speaking, can So a dad is responsible for creating an environment of formative and corrective discipline in his home. God calls him to do this. He gives him authority to do this. And in this environment, his children should be able to flourish while they are under that authority. But he is not and cannot be responsible for the salvation of his children, which is a work of God's sovereign grace. And to put that requirement on anyone seems inconsistent with other teaching from the Apostle Paul himself. And if the requirement was that an elder's children must be Christians, it would create some very strange scenarios. For example, I have no idea if Nathan Hall is a Christian. He's one. So should Pastor Caleb step down? And should we wait until he grows up and see if he becomes a Christian, at which case he could take up the mantle of being a pastor of our church again? 
I have a three-year-old. I have no idea. So should I do the same? And then we begin to realize that there are some challenges that present itself with understanding it that an elder's children must be Christians. It's very difficult to evaluate that. Now, that being said, if Nathan was a tyrant, which he isn't, thanks be to God, and you're in Brianna's parenting, if my children were wild and unruly, it would indicate that we're unable to oversee and influence our own children that we're spending all sorts of time with. And if we can't do that, then we have no business aspiring to or being called to exercise spiritual authority in the church. If a guy's kids won't listen to him, why should we expect that anyone else, is, and anyone else would either? And so in this, he must be above reproach. He must set an example. And one can only imagine the awkwardness of an elder being called to preach and teach and counsel on parenting if every week all that the church sees is they're running rampant, throwing tantrums, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, living in all sorts of uh, unruly, wild, destructive ways as they would get older uh, when they're still living at home. And so these are reasons why we must evaluate the home. And then Justin Taylor writes a third reason why I don't believe a pastor's elder's children must be Christians. He says, all of the requirements for leadership listed in this passage are the actions of personal responsibility. We would expect the requirement regarding his children to be in the same category. The curbing of wild and rebellious behavior in children is a fatherly responsibility. And in this, he must set an example, otherwise he's unqualified. As Paul writes to Timothy, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? As for adult children of men who would aspire to be an elder, who are not walking with the Lord, are they disqualified? That's another question that comes up. I do not believe so. For again, this would put the burden of salvation on the man, which is not what Scripture does. Wisdom may suggest in painful situations of extreme and public violation of God's law and societal law that a man serve elsewhere in the church rather than an elder. We want to make sure that we're not putting up unnecessary obstacles for the gospel in certain churches and communities. But again, those are cases that we would trust the leading of God's Spirit for. And taking all of this seriously, there are situations where I have envisioned that I would step down as an elder if such and such a threshold was crossed. Yet I parent prayerfully in hope that this would not be so while submitting to God's sovereignty and God's commands as revealed here in His Word. Now more questions. What about single men or widowers or married men who have no children? Are they automatically disqualified from service as elders in the local church? I don't believe so. Otherwise, Jesus would be disqualified and the Apostle Paul would be disqualified so, that must not be the extent of how we understand these verses. Most men are married. Most married men are parents. So, these are the primary means of determining his leadership capacity, but they're not the only arenas. A man who does not have a wife or children can demonstrate spiritual leadership in other forums. And in those forums may prove himself to have the leadership qualities required to shepherd the flock. And we can take those into consideration where there is no marriage and where there are no children. We know that Paul's not being exhaustive in his list of qualifications, 
because there are differences between this list and the list in Timothy, but they are representative, and we make application in different settings to inform our decisions about those we should and should not call to the office of overseer. And so the first place we look is the home, marriage, family, or other similar environments if those are not available, and a man must set an example and be above reproach in those areas. As for the second segment of coils in this leadership filament that the Spirit is pleased to work in and through, blessing both the church and the world, they come in both negative and positive forms in verses 7 and 8. And there's a handful of each. And from these, we learn, secondly, churches that bless the nations must be led by elders qualified by their character. Who elders are is a matter of urgent priority. Elders must be qualified by their character. Paul says uh, in verse 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, this is where we get God's household from, he must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And don't be thrown by the change in term from elder to overseer, sometimes translated bishop in verses 6 and 7. They're just interchangeable terms. And the New Testament changes them out here and changes them out elsewhere. Elders serve by overseeing. They lead by exercising spiritual authority in and for the church that she be a blessing to the nations. And again, this overarching qualification is repeated. He must be above reproach. Note the necessity of this. The oughtness. This is a non-negotiable. If Titus would serve the church in Crete well, he would not compromise on this front. If the church there would be used by God to bless the island of Crete, they must not compromise on this front. If we would be a church that would bless the nations, if our church would be a blessing to this region and beyond, we must not compromise on this front. And specifically, we are helped to understand what above reproach looks like with descriptions of what it does not look like. Paul says an elder is not to be arrogant. That's not overbearing. And men like this make things about themselves And this can be a rather subtle danger in a ministry context. We ought to pay attention so we don't install as men elders who talk often about themselves, who think that ministry is their personal proving ground for their love for Christ or their faithfulness or their courage. That's not what the office of an elder exists for. It exists for the glory of Christ. It exists for the good of His sheep and the building of the church and the spread of a gospel, of the gospel. So any man so full of himself as to think it's a platform to show how holy or spiritual or faithful he is, he does not fit the office. Paul says he's not to be quick-tempered. Someone who is arrogant thinks both too highly of themselves and too little of others. And arrogant people are not patient people. They are hot-headed, which an elder is not to be. Elders deal in matters of conviction, which are deeply rooted and passionately held. But these convictions are going to feel like flashbangs in a congregation if they are delivered in anger. 
An elder will encounter those who are not yet Christians and people who oppose the gospel and spiritually immature Christians who believe things that are not true and live things that are not according to Scripture. And so if he does not know how to control his passions and his tongue, a great deal of damage will be caused to the sheep that he is called to shepherd. An elder is not to be a drunkard. If a man is known more for being filled with alcohol or other conscience-altering substances like marijuana than he is for being filled with the Spirit, he has no business being an elder. His passions are unbridled. He cannot control himself. And a man who cannot control himself should never, ever be entrusted with spiritual authority. For if he sins against God for his own pleasure, he will certainly sin against the sheep for the same. An elder is also not to be violent. They're not to be bullies. Some guys like to fight with fists and words, not for the sake of what they are fighting for, but because they love the fight itself. And while we do wage war with spiritual weapons, while we do seek to destroy arguments and lofty opinions set up against our Lord Jesus Christ, how we do so is as important as that we do so. We ought to avoid people who mock beyond the very narrow, exceptional uses in Scripture. We should avoid men who slander and who pour contempt on people who disagree with them, especially when that mockery and contempt is directed towards fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. John Piper writes, Contending for our all cannot be done in a way that contradicts the character of our all, namely Jesus Christ. And if you've encountered in the past and been wounded by so-called bully pastors, and sadly they exist, you may be helped by Michael Kruger's blog post series or his book on the topic, Bully Pulpit Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. I would encourage you to read that to help train your powers of discernment to ensure that as you're maybe settling in here, or maybe you're going to settle in in another church, you have to make sure that I'm not a bully pastor, that our elders are not this way, that anywhere that you would end up, that they're not this way. And if you have been inflicted by wounds of this in the past, reading a book like that might help you to heal and to realize that what you encountered was painful, and it does need to be grieved, and it does require recovery. Paul goes on, he says that an elder must not be greedy for gain. Kent Hughes writes that the three most prevalent temptations that pastors and elders are prone to are glory, girls, and gold. Greedy for gain, greedy for glory, glory thieves, which we all are to some extent or another, but it's a terrible thing for an elder. A man who serves money, a man who loves money, will compromise the witness of a local church through such acts as theft and embezzlement, and it happens all the time. And then the church is smeared for the world to behold, and people think, ah, why would you have anything to do with them? Even their leaders are in it for the money. These are broken light bulbs shedding glass that cuts faithful witness to a shred and starts fires and burns people because they were squeezed into a position that they never should have held. And collectively, these negatives reflect a man's passions. 
Their commentary on his self-control, they reveal the degree to which he is self-centered. Do you see that? In arrogance, he's full of himself, quick-tempered, he's no time for others but himself. Drunk, he pleases himself. Violent, he exerts himself against others. Greedy, he's in it for himself. The presence of any of these disqualifies a current elder immediately and rules out for consideration a man who aspires to be an elder. Now, if this is all Paul said on the matter, the bar would be low indeed, or at least the picture would be incomplete. So he provides positive character traits of those qualified to exercise spiritual authority, which blesses the church, which in turn blesses the nations. On the contrary to what he has already said, character-wise, an elder is to be hospitable, literally a lover of strangers, of others, of those who are not like himself. He creates an environment with his home and where he works and with his resources and with his time for people to be welcomed and embraced and loved and listened to and cared for. A man qualified to be an elder is a lover of good. Not good meaning quality like I like a good game of golf or I like a good meal. I don't like a good game of golf. I don't like golf and it threw my back out a few weeks ago when I tried it so it's out forever but I'm not sure why I told you that. (laughs) Lover of good means a lover of good morally, theologically, as befits God who alone is good. And he longs to see this good flourish in the church and in the world. And surprisingly, based on the negatives that we've explored, an elder is to be self-controlled. Someone writes, whatever the theological, ethical, or interpersonal issue, whether public or private, a church leader is to be steady and dependable, I love this phrase, not at the mercy of pressures external to himself. When my family and I went out east earlier this year, we stopped at Peggy's Cove, and I could have sat there for hours. I could still be sitting there because I just love to watch the ocean, love the ocean. But I wouldn't have enjoyed it so much had it been out in it because of the force of the wind and the waves that would have been insurmountable and likely would have killed me. An uncontrolled man is like those frothing, crashing slabs of water. An elder is like the rocks that we were sitting on, unmoved by all the forces around, steady, solid, trustworthy. An elder is also to be upright, Paul says. Having been made and declared righteous by God and loving righteousness because he loves God, an elder is a man who is upright. He seeks to bring his life into alignment with God and God's Word, and others can look to his example to help their lives come into greater alignment with God and His Word as well. Men who exercise spiritual authority in the local church are men whose way of life you would actually want to be contagious, to be imitated, to be followed. A man whose company inspires you to sin less is a man He may be qualified to be an elder in the local church. One of my favorite figures of history is William Wilberforce, and it was said of him, his presence was as fatal to dullness as it was to immorality. What a wonderful commentary to be made about one's life. That's an elder. It's an elder qualification. Predictably, Paul says that the next example of blamelessness is that an elder be holy. And surely this overlaps with upright or righteousness, for God is both righteous and holy, and those entrusted to oversee his household ought to be also. 
Men who lead the way in being holy as God is holy are men who should be identified and looked to as examples to bless the church, which in turn blesses the nations. And the final descriptor Paul gives in this sequence is disciplined. There's a song I used to listen to as a teenager that only takes one tree to make a thousand matches. It only takes one match to burn a thousand trees. An undisciplined man can quickly ruin what has taken a long time to establish. And without discipline in time, that can easily happen. And so a track record of discipline in areas of life says much about a man's character. And this must be present for him to be qualified to exercise spiritual authority in the life of a local church. Now you'll notice at this point, to this point, most of the time and attention given by me, because it has been given by Paul, is on character. It's on the kind of man an elder ought to be, not on his ability. Skills, accomplishments, business acumen, success, charisma, appearance, none of those feature. And what we should also notice, as Don Carson points out, is their ordinariness. He says of elder qualifications, almost every entry is mandated elsewhere of all believers. You can search that out for yourself. One of the life groups asked this week, and keep up the excellent questions, brothers and sisters, one of them asked, who can live up to these virtues? That's an excellent inquiry. And the answer has to be those who are born again as new creations in Christ and who constantly rest and rely upon the strength of His transforming grace to make them increasingly like Himself. If you're here this morning as someone who is not a Christian, and you find these positive character traits appealing, maybe even creating a longing in yourself for them to be displayed in your life, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps to embody them. If any of these negative characteristics are off-putting, and perhaps you see some of them in yourself, they cannot be overcome by your own self-will and dedication. Spiritually dead people cannot do this. If you're not a Christian, you are mired in the muck of your sin. You're in bondage, enslaved, you're stained by your sin. And perhaps God is impressing this upon you today. And on our own, it is impossible to overcome them and to attain these positive character traits that Paul writes about. Why do you think they're so rare? Why do you think there's so many leadership failures? It's because people don't look to Christ who's the only one who can remake us as new creations. And so from our sin, we must first repent. In Jesus' death on the cross, we must first trust. And following this, it's only the powerful, ongoing work of the Spirit of God in the life of an individual that can create what Paul writes about here. And where and when he does, men emerge in the life of the church who can set an example for the entire flock to follow in their own conformity to Christ. This is as a light to the church. This blesses the church. And as the church is so blessed, she in turn will bless the nations. The third way elders do this, beyond leadership and character, is in their commitment to the truth of Scripture. Churches that bless the nations must be led by elders qualified by their doctrine. That a man holds to the teaching of Scripture is essential Churches that bless the nations must be led by elders qualified 
by their doctrine. Paul continues from the list of character traits to say he must, there's that oughtness again, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. I watched a video this week of a man named Chris Gursky, who while on vacation in Switzerland decided to try out hang gliding. And immediately after takeoff, while hundreds of feet in the air, it became clear that the pilot did not strap him to the apparatus. And for three agonizing minutes, while he waited for the pilot to urgently land the thing, he hung on to the bar with his left hand. And he was groping around trying to find another spot for his right hand to grab onto. He knew that if he let go, he would die. Thankfully, the pilot was able to land before his grip gave out. And while hanging on for dear life, the guy actually tore a muscle in his left bicep. That's the kind of grip we want men to have on the truth of the gospel who will be elders in the local church. They will hang on even when it hurts. Men who know that holding on to the apostolic teaching about Jesus Christ is a matter of life and death, and he won't let go no matter what. Paul uses this phrase, trustworthy. Trustworthy word, trustworthy saying. He uses it in his letters to Timothy and Titus. Here are a few examples of what that trustworthy word is. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. We are looking for elders who will hang on to that and will not let go. He writes in 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We hang on to that. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. These are the truths that man must cling to. If he would be an elder, they would bless the church in order that the church might bless the nations. And listen, A local congregation must be able to evaluate what a man believes by listening to what he does and does not say. By listening to his prayers, his conversations, how he handles the Bible. And all of this presupposes that local church members, that is you, brothers and sisters, are prayerfully studying the Word yourselves. Training your powers of discernment, keeping your Bible open at all times to weigh what has been said, to weigh everything that I say and that Caleb says and that Kevin says. It gets weighed against what you have in your hands. Paul instructed the Galatian church in this manner. He said, even if we, an apostle or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So, brothers and sisters, it is your responsibility as members of Hasper Baptist Church to ensure that you never suffer elders who would cling to anything else other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are you growing in your ability to fulfill that responsibility? 
Now, certainly qualified elders are to help you in this. Elders that bless local churches, that in turn bless the nations, they are qualified by their leadership, by their character, by their doctrine, and of course, by their teaching. Finally, we come to an area of ability. Churches that bless the nations must be led by elders qualified by their teaching. Paul writes in verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He doesn't alter it in any way, shape, or form so that, here's the purpose, he may be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. As John Calvin put it, a pastor needs two voices. One, we're gathering the sheep, and the other, driving away wolves and thieves. Elders are to be shepherds after God's own heart, like we find in Psalm 23. And there, you recall what it is that brings comfort to David? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was used to corral the sheep. Uh, sorry, the, the staff was used to corral the sheep. The rod was a hardened weapon that the shepherd would use to throw at wild animals that were coming to devour the flock. And so the, on the one hand, elders that bless the church are men who are capable of opening God's word, and they provide soul-nourishing sustenance with the, the aid of the Spirit. And this can happen in preaching settings, in small group settings, one-on-one biblical counseling, and conversations over coffee. And then on the other hand, elders are to be capable of wielding the sword of the Spirit to fend off peddlers of spiritual poison that will make Christ's sheep weak and sick if they eat it. And there is as much need for this in our day as there was in Titus's day on, in, in Crete. And for the means and manner of how elders handle wolves, that's next week's sermon. Notice the four in verse 10. Paul is connecting these two, and we'll lean back a little bit into verse 9 as we continue in chapter 1 next week. The presence of empty talkers and deceivers is reason for elders needing to be qualified by their doctrine and their teaching. But for now, let me conclude by drawing attention to how desperate our world is for the exercise of healthy authority, especially so in the church. In their book, Authority, the Most Misunderstood Idea in America, Eugene Kennedy and Sarah Charles argue that the stabilizing character of healthy authority is what has been missing. Its return is what will make us more confident and less anxious in managing our lives. Healthy authority matches the needs and goals of serious, intimate relationships because its concern is not to overcome others, but to fuel the growth of people who feel safe with each other. Authority is not inherently bad. And although we think it is at times because of the many examples of the abuse of authority in our world and in the church, the answer is not to get rid of it. People say, I hate organized religion. I hate power and authority in those types of places. Authority is bad. Power is bad. God is all-powerful. And Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, and they are good. And they are loving, and they are kind, and they are gracious. The problem isn't power and authority. And so we should not seek to get rid of them. The answer 
is to prayerfully pursue installing qualified men as elders in the local church who, according to Scripture, are fit to exercise spiritual authority to bless the church, which in turn blesses the nations. You see, brothers and sisters, as the Spirit is pleased to empower the character filament with all these coils, light is shed upon who God is, upon who Christ is. A husband who loves and leads his wife points us to the bridegroom who died on the cross to rescue his. A father who loves and leads his children points us to the father that we have in heaven. An elder who is hospitable points us to God's welcome for us in Christ. An elder who loves what is good points to God who is good. An elder who is upright points to God who is righteous and who would declare us righteous through faith in Christ and make us righteous by the sanctifying power of the Spirit. An elder who is holy points us to God who is holy of our need to be made holy so that we might enter into his presence. An elder who preaches and teaches the truth points us to the God who speaks, to his powerful word and to the true and living word, to Christ who is the prophet. An elder who defends and protects the flock points us to Christ, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, who will ensure that we will conquer by his blood and he will lead us eternally, safely into his eternal kingdom. And isn't this what our world needs? So our world needs elders. Our churches need elders qualified to exercise spiritual authority in the church, which blesses the nations. Because when faithful men do this, they fade into the background because it's not about them. It's about Christ increasing and them decreasing for the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, help us to walk in obedience to what your word says here. And help us who are currently elders to search our own hearts as we would ask you to do that work and to ensure that there is not any way in which we are disqualified and at the same time that we are pursuing to be an even greater example in these character qualifications that we read about here and in our understanding of the gospel and its holding it forth and protecting the flock. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up men among us who are aspiring to be elders. And I pray, Lord, that if it would please you, that through our church, that you would help us to establish and equip those who could be fit to be elders in other local congregations, that they might be blessed, and that people might be blessed in turn by hearing the gospel. So help us not to be merely hearers of your word, but doers also, we ask, or we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. is with the others in a final song that does help us to think about the nations. And so sing these words as prayer to God that he would use us for his glory.